Hey folks, welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. Well folks, it's a great and exciting time this year. Um, we're at that time of year where we've just gone through the fall and had our, our, whether you're a deer hunter, waterfowl hunter, we had the late season waterfowl hunting. I'm at the time now, it's kind of cool. I'm, I'm uh, conditioning pot calls and getting the presses out, making diaphragms and plus tuning snow goose calls. It's an exciting time because it's like the God's promise of uh, warmer weather coming and the excitement, the, the, the gobbles in the morning. But, uh, you know, the cool thing is hunters and, and especially the waterfowl hunters were a tight knit group. And uh, I've done stuff all over in the country, hunted all over this country and made a lot of friendships and and uh, got to share the, a lot of the same passions. But, you know, uh, through my next guest, it's very interesting. He's a, I call him Gulliver because he's a worldwide trial. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not just his big game. And I've done podcasts with him on the big game, but it's exciting. He has a tour. And uh, we'll hear about his podcast, but it's he's doing a lot of stuff hunting waterfowl in the uh, other countries, other continents, and meeting people who share the same passion of what we do. And it's so interesting to have Ryan Basham on our program. Ryan, welcome aboard. Thanks, buddy. Glad to be back on. It's been a while since we talked about some some crazy stories in Africa. I'm ready to talk about some crazy bird stuff now. <laughs> well, you know, I just I ate up everything you said because I remember as a kid, you're all we've all sat there and with the outdoor life and the field and stream magazine, yeah. read some of the big game um stuff, you know, guys are hunting out there. But you know, Fred Bear was, you know, I was a big idol of Fred Bear, I guess, growing up because he was actually the first guy doing the videos here and, and traveling to places that guys haven't been and i met glenn st charles years ago i had him signed my dad's old uh, bear recurve i got oh, that's his book. cool yeah he signed his book the bows a little delta and it was so awesome to listen about traveling to other places you know and i grew up in the midwest and it's basically all we knew you know on shooting ducks and and uh <laughs> hunting geese and sitting in a tree stand for whitetails but uh I really, uh, you sent me the link there to your new podcast, and is it the Road to 200? To 100, yeah. So, um, kind of a, kind of a crazy way, and it kind of aligns with what you're just talking about there. So, um, I did a project, a film project. Um, gosh, I think it's been a couple of years now, and it was called. Um, it was just simply called. The title of it was Home, and the the reason that we we did that film was we all have our our roots where we cut our teeth learning to hunt where we fell in love with this this sport and this pursuit and so for me that was northeast texas and uh long story short while my my buddy and partner in the road to 100 his name is kyam lloyd um as we were filming that went back to our my old family homestead in northeast texas where i learned how to hunt birds and you know bow hunt whitetail all that good stuff we we were talking you know if if i could go anywhere because i've i've been fortunate and, and very blessed to to travel the world and hunt a lot of different things but if i could go anywhere where would i want to go and i was like here i'd go back home um this is where it all started for me but in in that conversation um he was like well, well how many birds have you hunted now and i think at the point at that point in time i had hunted 76 waterfowl species completed my world turkey slam and I think it was like 60 something big game animals internationally. And he's like, well, well, what's your goal? And I was like, well, my goal always has just been to get to a hundred waterfowl species. It's a nice round number. And I was like, and it's been a hard road. And he was like, that's it. I was like, that's what he's like the road to 100. He's like, let's film you hunting the rest of the 100. And I was like, 
yes, I don't know. I was like, you know what would be better? I was like, how about you and I do it together as buddies and we document it from zero to 100 and show everybody that full journey, all these amazing places, all these amazing species and people along the way. And uh, so that was, gosh, I'm trying to think now. That was back in 2021. And then we solidified it November 2022 um, and went on our first trip for the project in December of 2022 and just started releasing episodes um, the last few weeks. So it's been it's been a lot of a lot of effort (laughs) and a lot of planning, but it's uh, it's happening. So we're pretty excited. Well, I'll tell you what, congratulations, because what I've seen so far, first class editing, dude, your editing's awesome. But in the footage, Kyle's a wizard. Yeah, and, and the and that means a lot. Whether you know, we knew that back way years ago in the days of Avery when we were doing sure. video and stuff. You know, the editing guy—that's your best buddy. Yes, <laughs> without question. I mean, and that's that's kind of how we've looked at it. He he saw himself as, um, and that's kind of what makes I think our project different. A couple things. It's it's not just a film series um, that we think will take about five years. I think this is about a five-year film series in total, um, but we're also doing a podcast. But the other interesting part is I was very adamant, like this isn't about me as an individual. I don't want it to feel that way. This is about the world of waterfowl hunting. This is about buddies. And Kayam, um is a really good friend before he was uh, you know, a, a work colleague, or in this case, a, a partner in this business together. And so um, he is incredibly talented. He deserves a lot of the credit um, when it comes to editing and, and creating storylines and doing everything like he's, he is a, a critical part for what we're trying to accomplish. So I wish he could be here now, but um, you, you're stuck with me instead. <laughs> well, you know, um, the first one that you sent me that I watched was the one in Sweden. Yes. And, you know, I couldn't tell you what a barnacle goose sounds like. I wouldn't know, <laughs> or the gray goose and stuff, you know, and we looked at that because uh, I've had people contact us, even back when I was with Lynch Mob Calls, and about doing, you know, hey, do you do any of the gray goose calls and, and stuff like that? And right. then Russia does a ton of, you know, of business. So um, I wouldn't even know how one sounds, but uh, when you're hunting over there, do they rely, and I shouldn't say over there, let's pick, you know, the different yeah. countries. Is there the same rely that uh, on the calling, like we, the guys here in the States, you know, everybody, you know, thinks that they got to be the master caller and it's not as much about decoy setups. And to me, it's always about being in the right place, but do they, place as, as much emphasis over there on the calling or is it more in the right place concealment and decoys oh, fantastic question um and honestly we could have i could have a different response to that question for every continent and every country i've been to um because it is slightly different and there's different variables in that equation no matter where you go um we'll talk specifically sweden because that was our first two episodes of the project we checked off three new species um, for the project with uh, those pilot episodes. We didn't even have sponsors when we went and filmed that. That was just, hey, let's go test this idea. We didn't know what we were doing. Like the fact that it came out as amazing as it did is just credit to Kaim and how good his editing is. So, you know what? Um, That's what's so cool, Ryan, is that this wasn't about sponsors making this happen. I mean, it's yeah. nice to have partners, but it's because of your passion and your buddy's passion with an idea. That's right. what drove this. 
You're going to do it with a sponsor no matter what. Exactly. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we're not going to shy away from saying we, we've been very fortunate. And I'm going to answer your question. But we've been very fortunate. I feel this is important. A lot of people, they're like, oh, man, like these guys just go and get sponsors for whatever. They'll, they'll you know, use whatever product they can as long as they're getting money. And, and, and the reality is, it's like that's that's not necessarily entirely true. Like we're fortunate in that all of our partners – we do believe in those products. We've been using a lot of those products, not all of them, but like I would say of our nine sponsors, we had already been using seven of those a lot. Like we just got lucky that they liked us enough and the idea to say yes. So we're already using those products um, and a project of this scale, we have to be funded. We're not doing this to make money, um, but to do this amount of travel the way we're doing it. Um, it has to be very well funded and planned out. So, um, we're, we were grateful, but yeah, we definitely took a flyer and I invested some personal money into making that first one happen. Um, luckily it, it turned out okay. And, and some people wanted to see us finish the journey. So fingers crossed it stays that way and we, we continue to have the support we need, but, um, but yes, to answer your question. So in Sweden specifically, um, I think what we take for granted sometimes as, um, I'm not even say North America as hunters in the United States, the resources that we have at our disposal are far greater than anywhere else in the world. Resources, meaning, um, the tools, the products, right. Um, that comes down to, uh, the calls, as you mentioned, um, when you start traveling around the world, man, like I think there might be two guys that I know of in Europe that turn calls and yeah, so they, they can, sit there and I've got a gray lag call. I suck at it, but I got one. It's fun to play with. Um, you know, they've got pink footed geese calls. Um, their mallard calls are really comparable to ours because in Europe, there's a ton of mallards. Um, and in that way it's, it is similar. Now, are they as reliant on the calls? I would say no. Uh, the tactics over there are very much different. Um, you want to be on the X the best you can. Sometimes they have layout blinds, but most of the time they don't. Again, they don't have manufacturers over there um, that are making those products in abundance like us, and they can't just run over to a Bass Pro or a, a Shields or Academy Sports or depending on where you are here in the U.S. where you would buy products like that. That's not readily available to them at all, and so they're much more in a – I don't want to – the word primitive isn't correct, but um, I think fits here, but they're in a more primitive situation like they have – the same shotguns we do they get to shoot lead which is awesome um but as far as gear man they're doing the best they can with what they got and that affects their strategy and tactics to go out in the field and be successful at what they do so they still do some classic like pass shooting which i know all of us here were like man we want to feet down in the decoys well if you don't have decoys and you don't have a call how do you hunt them and that's what they have to do they're just as passionate as we are they're just making lemonade with lemons. Right. Their, their lemons are just different than ours. Wow, great point. And how blessed we are here. And then we take it for granted and stuff. I can remember, oh man, that's terrible. I can't remember. I know what you would know the writer, Gary, something, but it was years ago. He did a, one of the whistling wings for Mossy Oak. He did a clip of, of hunting, past shooting geese in Texas. And yep. that's what was pretty cool because they were up on a hill, you know, and, and the reservoir, the river, wherever hunting was down below. So what they did, they went out with great big, these uh, post hole diggers and then dug like a barrel, you know, 55 gallon <laughs> hole into the ground. And they just crawled down in that ground and then pass shoot as they come up. 
I mean, that's a style. It's a style of hunting. I mean, you still, you, you, it's about taking the ethical shot just because, you know, you're not sitting up and, and called in into the middle of a field that they, they don't want to be or wherever. If you are hunting the X and blessed to hunt there. But, you know, I say to each his own and, and each man, whatever he wants to do, you still got to take the ethical shots. Absolutely. And I think you make a great point there. I think that um, a lot of times within the wider world of, of wing shooting, we hear about it being sporting. Um, and I think that people may define that term like it was that a very it was a sporting shoot, meaning was it a was it a good um, opportunity to get the shotgun out and, and make some some good shots? And people define that differently. I mean, I, there's a lot of people that to them, that's defined as, well, we we put them feet down in the decoys in the timber with sub gauges and shot them at 10 and 15 yards. It was sporting. Over in Europe and other places, it's, hey, we were able to to figure out where the feed was. We know where their roost is at. We positioned ourselves accordingly, and we were able to pass shoot them. And you want to talk about sporting shooting, man, like shooting uh, geese passing by at 35, 40, 45, 50 yards and making clean ethical shots. If that's all you got, that's a pretty sporting shoot. And so, um, again, it's all defined differently. But I think what I love the most um, about this journey is that the passion's the same. Languages are different. Um, the gear is different. The tactics are different. The love of hearing wind cut through wings of birds and getting that bird in your hand and and eating those birds and whatever traditional recipes you have, all that good stuff, man. Um, it's all the same. It's all that same love and passion. And that's that's why it's a, a worldwide brotherhood, not just here in the U.S. I love that worldwide brotherhood. And it reminds years ago, it was Sportsman's Warehouse. I was, did some traveling with them uh, for shows and Phil Robertson was doing them. So got to do side by side with Phil, you know, standing behind the counter. And, and one of the things that he would always talk about, it's the sound of those wings. And yes. it is. You sit there and, and you know duck hunting especially when you're sitting there and you're on that right water hole or in the field and man they come by in a group of 100 75 100 and that you know <laughs> it, no doubt about it you could just close your eyes and listen and, absolutely and but I, i've always wondered never have been you know the only other country i hunted was canada like everybody else never hunted mexico but in canada even just even that they border our country if you go up far enough, they don't have the equipment in readily like we do. You're right. right. And even a country that close. So I can't right. imagine, you know, continents away what's over. But um, so what's your favorite eating over there? I've, I've, in Sweden, <laughs> what was the best one to eat? Oh, man. Um, so I'd probably say – so the reality is, is if you go back and watch our first and second episodes, we we only shot two bean geese. Um, unfortunately we didn't get to eat those those ended up kind of going with the the guy that was our last day and he he took those we ate some of the gray lag um and the barnacle geese i would say probably the gray lag which is really comparable to speck. um yeah it looks just like a speck almost um they're a little bit bigger body the distinction of the the specks across the the belly isn't as prominent as we have on our speckle belly they don't do that yodeling call quite like um, a speck does but um if you were to just at a glance look at one you would be like oh that's a speck and then you look closer it's like oh no that's that's not and so if you go back and um if you're listening you want to see what they look like what they sound like etc we do our best to kind of show that in those episodes and you can get an idea of what a gray lag looks like but um they're pretty good eating i mean um the barnacle geese 
pretty comparable, I guess. They're not too much different as far as eating. They, they're coming in and eating ag fields, same as they would here. And so the diet is such where, you know, they're, they've got good feed, um, and, and all that's pretty much the same. Um, I think that they, they probably work pretty comparable to, to what specs would do as well when you are trying to get them to, to decoy in, um, a lot of those birds we did decoy, but our hide was always a little bit different. Um, like the first morning on those barnacle geese, we, the ground was frozen and it was like abnormally cold. Normally they dig in old school coffin blinds, kind of like we used to historically here. Um, and then, you know, products revolutionized and we ended up with layout blinds, different variations of that. Now everybody's hunting field edges and A-frames. Well, they don't have A-frames. Um, you can rough hunt and build an A-frame and, you know, be ingenuitive if you want. And, and we try to do a little bit of that, but it's a lot of pass shooting. And then in the one episode, we did hunt out of some layout blinds, but they were like those old uh, power blinds um, that, gosh, we yeah. had a Final approach power blinds, is that what those were? The ones oh, that the lid would come that. straight down? X-Lander. That's what, yeah. Okay, it's more comparable to those. But man, we we were fighting those the whole time. There's a funny clip of uh, Logan Moe was there with us. He's the owner of Mallard Bay. And um, the wind was was definitely against us. Um, the wind was right, but it doesn't work with those blinds. It just kept, keeps blowing it right back down on top of you because, again, they're oh, not well about the power hunter. The power, the power hunter? hunter layout blinds, yeah. Oh, there you so go. They're not, they're not manufactured at the same quality of what we have over here. And so it was just a battle the whole time. You try to flip that thing open to go up and get a shot, and it's immediately slamming you right back in the head. So, um, again, they don't have the same resources. But we we didn't get to dig in and, and hunt out of the out of the ground like they normally would um, traditionally. It was a lot of pass shooting on field edges. And, um, and then the one day we were actually able to get – and those old, old old school power blinds, but um, yeah, man, it was it was different for sure. I think the coolest thing, though, because every waterfowl hunter can relate to this gas station food, man. At some point, as a waterfowl hunter, <laughs> you're, before or after the hunt, you're going to the gas station. Um, I think for a lot of guys my age and younger, you're going to slam a couple energy drinks and maybe grab a snack or two. So there, same thing, but they have venison hot dogs. And they're oh. so good. And it's, and it's not, obviously they don't have white tailed deer. So it's like red stag and roe deer, um, which is really cool. And you buy them there at the gas stations. They have different types of them. They're like garlic or whatever. And so that was pretty cool. So we, we made our morning gas station stop for venison hot dogs before. Isn't that amazing? The difference in the society though, because if you did that over here, you know, like Stephen Ranelli always said in the past, you know, he, he did a great thing talking about mm -hmm. man has lost his palate, his palate yes. over the years, you know, which I thought was a great, interesting point. Um, if you're a guy that you've been raised up on wild game and it's just, you know, to mm -hmm. me, always a respectful is a delicacy. But if you imagine here <laughs> sitting, hey, man, you want, you want to visit some hot dog? Oh, my gosh, you'd have women in there. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, here's the wild thing. I will say, I think I, I need to go back and count. I've, I know it's over. I've hunted in over 20 countries. The United States, um, and Canada are the only places that I have not been able to legally buy game meat over the counter. Every other country I've been in across Africa, across Europe and Asia in the South Pacific, you can go into a store, gas station, restaurant, whatever, and buy wild game meat for, to eat. And so we are actually, I don't know why, but the United States and Canada specifically, we don't do it. And it's uh, the rest of the world does. 
I can so, tell you, I mean, even I pretty much we try to a lot of guys, you know, we, we process a lot of our own wild game and, and whatever we can do. But, you know, if you have your deer done commercially, all your wrapping says not for sale, not right. for sale. Look that clearly. And I, it's definitely a government. It's a it's a it thing. Uh, hey, we're going to control this. And because you know why you might try to sell it to other people and, and make money off it and stuff like that. You know, it's a, and, you know, it's a control thing. And, and it's sad. It is. Um, that's so cool a gas station venison hot dog man I'm, that's a, yeah, it was awesome you know what that's gonna stick in my head today wow that's cool you know it was can, cool i think it's awesome to go to arkansas so i can get catfish at the gas stations you know and chicken yeah gizzards, and chicken gizzards. but man that's awesome so, yeah i know it was really cool you know what's listening to you because i'm quite a bit older than you Back in our in our, you know, when we hunted, I was one of the, the first guys that hunted uh, field hunted geese in 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 Michigan. And when we got our first early and late season, man, guys, you know, waterfowl, which you hunt in the water and have decoys and stuff. So we were on a journey of having to find our own way, so to speak, and the stupid things and everything we did trying to learn how to hunt. We were finding our own path and. You know, and I remember hunting with zinc and, and a lot of those guys. We didn't have that stuff. I can kind of relate to your friends in the other continent because we were we had to do with what we had. So we were more um, ingenuitive, I guess you said, and had to be more creative and uh, and making. And I remember we did some filming with uh, Michigan Outdoors. Uh, years ago uh, up in the thumb area of Michigan and it was a great goose hunt and we even killed an orange band on, on the show but we were hunting a cucumber field they called it a pickle field oh wow uh, that's cool harvest pickle field so I mean they've yes, done that that's cool yeah it was cool I and mean, yeah I didn't realize how much geese love cucumbers and <laughs> um, so you look at a harvest field and you had old vines and stuff like that so you know, what we did is we, we, we dug coffins like we've done a lot. And like, so when the ground isn't frozen, you always spread the dirt out because, you know, the farmer, you're going to close that back up. But we also, we used uh remesh, cement remesh, mm -hmm. uh, used a, a re-rod to make the frame and actually used it to make a, a door. So it would lay over your hole and then we'd thatch all the cucumber vines. That's awesome. <laughs> Dude. And we, boom. I mean, they were there, but <laughs> You know, today you look at that. It's it's um it's almost kind of sad. I don't want to say it's sad, but the young kids today, it's so easy to just order something online mm -hmm. and lost our. Of course, we lost our manufacturing taste here in this country. But you know, it, they um they'll go and, and hey, we'll put an A-frame all the time up in a pit corn field and and it works and it's stuff. But you know, they wonder why sometimes birds get tough to kill and, and sure. yet instead of going to the next level sometimes not having everything might not always you know it, it might be more wanting. you make an interesting point there and i think that um I, I think we definitely educate birds um and i think that we see product cycle so like i remember gosh i was a kid when um layout blinds became more of a real thing and started being produced at mass um and they were highly effective and now all of a sudden the A-frame is highly effective and, and maybe in certain areas in the country, up and down different pieces of the flyway, layouts maybe have gotten to be not as effective. Same thing with spinning wing decoys when they first came out. Oh, man, it was a magnet, right? Um, and so all these things. But then over time, we do educate birds. And then you have these 
next few generations of birds where guys start using some of these specific um you know tools um in their hunt and then that generate those next generations come of birds that haven't seen stuff that we've forgotten about it's like oh it's time to bring that back right again adaptation they adapt they adapt and the dumb ones of course they don't tell anybody it's the smart ones i told the story the other day that years ago, I was in Southwest Iowa. We were doing a snow goose. I was guiding snow geese, and and uh, of course, you know everybody, you know you want to get into the juvies, and you get the adults when they first come, and after that they're tough. And anyway, we were in that right in that cycle where we had adults leaving and juvies were coming, and we were in this big, huge, uh, with container box blind that the guy <laughs> was on a. They made a levee that was in between this large, large pond. Um, this levee and we had floaters and we had snow goose around there, but I'll never forget. I was guiding and I had looked up and, and I said, guys, we got these juvies coming in, get ready, get ready. And I remember this juvenile blue goose. I mean, he was coming in, he was one of the first ones coming in. And so I'm looking straight up and getting ready, you know, let's watch these. These are going to do it. And I kid you not, Ryan, I watched this adult snow goose come in and hit that blue goose and drove it like it was Dick Buckus. Pushing it, <laughs> and I looked at that and caught. Oh, wow, you can't believe that! That blue goose tried to come in again, and that really, like, oh, do it up. And that, I would, of course, we weren't filming back then as much, you know. But you didn't always have a camera. It was just I was guiding you. You had to get geese. Mm-hmm. All you worried about. But I looked up, and here come that blue goose again. Twice that adult goose came in, drove that juvenile out, and then those geese left. And I looked at really. Them, Oh, yeah. And I said, that's cool, dude. I said that right there was adaptation. I mean, they were teaching the next generation. Now that goose is going to remember, you know, and if you don't mm-hmm. think they can problem solve. Um, I actually oh, yeah. one time in a Wendy's uh, drive through in Michigan, I was waiting to pull up in line. I looked over and here was a bag of a white Wendy bag sitting <laughs> on the ground. And here was this big adult crow sticking his head looking in this bag i kid you not this crow you talk about problem solving the crow walks around to the back of the bag bites and picks up the bag lifts it up and shakes the french fries out of the bag <laughs> and then it walks over and completes it. i mean so yeah they can problem solve they learn <laughs> absolutely more than we give them credit absolutely yeah no i totally agree and i think uh it's interesting how they can adapt around the world you know to to things that change so so let me uh and i would probably i think i know the answer to this um and when it comes to guns and and over there do you still see the the, is it a 12 gauge to 10 gauge do they have three and a half 12s i mean here you know everybody now i'm hunting with a 20 gauge you know or i'm hunting with a 410 well you know you are because you're shooting ammo that's fifty, sixty dollars for ten. That's wicked, exactly. great stuff. But there's no way when I was a kid could I afford that, you know. So I, you know, I yeah. Think- I, you know, so I would say when you look at it from a worldwide perspective, most of the worldwide wing shooting, shooting community is still shooting twelve gauge ammunition because that has been the largest produced. Um, you know, shells worldwide. And so it's more readily available. Um, I still would say that the majority of the world is still shooting lead. Um, now there's different places in 
Europe now where they're definitely going to start switching over to uh, regulations that would be non-toxic. you know non-toxic. Um, but yeah, two, three to two and three quarter and three inch lead is pretty much standard everywhere. And so, so much so like I love shooting sub gauges too. They're fun. I get it. Um, I still like shooting 12 gauge just as much, but when I travel and travel with my own shotgun, I always just bring a 12 gauge because if I were to bring a 20 or 28, the likelihood of them having ammo for me is probably not going to be very high. Now that's not to, that's not to say that in places like Mexico and Argentina, do they have 20 gauge? Yes, they do. Um, you start going to some more of these obscure countries we've been to, man, they're probably not going to have it. They're going to have 12 gauge. They're probably going to look at you and say, hey, buddy, when you grow up, we'll have a 12-gauge. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Be that's a real awesome. man and shoot a 12-gauge is their mentality. And, you know, I get it. That's that's all they got. So, so and the next thing, too, um, what about the uh, – do they have a Department of Natural Resources? Do they have a conservation officer? Do they have a law enforcement that is strict and watching you uh, as much – I mean – I've noticed in yours, it was all, you know, you guys made sure that you had all your paperwork and, and your gun permits, which mm-hmm. is all important. We all know that because, you know, you're not going to go to another country and, and try to sneak gun. The worst thing you can do. But are they as strict as, you know, saying the officers who are watching your fields? I mean, like I said, I used to guide yours. We used to, they used to sit at the roads and hide with binoculars, mm-hmm. watch what everybody is. You know. So we knew that it was pretty, sure. pretty a tight. Yeah. I, so this we should spend some time on this topic and not just speak to it specifically about Sweden and Europe, because this is a, this is a really intriguing conversation in my opinion. So specific to Sweden and a lot of the Western European countries that I've been to and hunted. Yes. It's, it's uh, we never saw Mr. Green jeans in the field, so to speak. Um, But the, I think that if you were to be caught hunting out of regulation there, the penalty is much greater than it would be in other places. So you dot your I's and cross your T's, you better believe it. Now it's more complicated there. Like a lot of the countries have hunted there. Um, you have to like the outfitter, the guide has to have, he has to be licensed of course, um, which is not the case everywhere else in the world. But beyond that, like he can have hunting permits for like, if there's a highway and the East side of the highway, he may have a hunting permit for, all those properties on the east side of the highway, but he may not for the west side of that piece of highway. And so you can't just be like an outfitter over there and be like, well, I've got my guy license and I can get permission here and go over here and hunt this place. Or this is some public, you know, some public property we can go and hunt. It's you have to have certain permits to hunt certain species in certain areas and certain times. Of the year. It's much more complicated. So they carry around a binder full of all this paperwork so that in case they get pulled over by, um, you know, what would be the equivalent of a wild fish and game officer or the police? Cause the police can check them too. They're the ones checking the gun paperwork. Um, you have to have all that dialed in as a, as a hunter, you have to have on your person physically the, um, all the paperwork for the firearm that you have, and nobody else can have that firearm in your, in their possession. And so, yes, it's much more heavily scrutinized, especially in Europe. Um, Whereas, you know, go to Argentina and Mexico, and obviously we have the opposite, right? And so, yeah, there's permits. Yeah, there's paperwork. Is it as heavily enforced? Absolutely not. Um, Nothing that a $20 bill can't fix in most cases. I'm not saying that that's what you should do. I'm just saying that's that's how it works there. That's the facts. That's how it works there. 
would you say it's because more of the tourism, you know, Argentina and Mexico, I mean, that's more known for the tourism. I don't, I can't imagine there's a ton of people who want to go to Eastern Europe or Sweden as they do Argentina. And Sure. It's, I think it's cultural. Um, you know, there's certain cultures that um, appreciate or hold the law in a higher standard than others. Okay. And that's not a knock at anybody. That's just how it is. I, I lived in South America for two years. Um, the law just doesn't get um, applied and is not upheld like it is in other places. Whereas when you look at most of the European countries, the, a lot of those places, I mean, they, they've been populated for a long time. If you look at the history of kings and queens and monarchies and and how how important it was to uphold justice and what the scrutiny and what those what the reprimand was for breaking the law for the last several centuries there, it's a different mentality of abiding the law versus some of these other places that are maybe less developed, not as heavily populated, and don't have that history going back centuries of obeying the law. And so that's that's my look on it. Um, you know, and then you have other places. This one's super unique. Um, for anybody that's not following the situation in Australia, they they should be, especially for waterfowl, because it's, if it can happen there, it kind of scares me. I think it can happen here. But for the provinces of South Australia and Victoria, they have been battling and fighting to keep their waterfowl hunting rights for the last several years. Um, now, specific to your question, how is wildlife fishing game over there? There's is Fielding Game Australia, if you want to look it up and dive more into what they're dealing with and what Fielding Game Australia is doing. But um it's so regulated there that in order to obtain a hunting license as a waterfowl hunter, you have to go to the Field and Game Australia office, you sit down, and you take a test. And it's a bird identification test. And it's not like, hey, here's a really nice photo. What, what bird species is this? It's like some dude went out in a marsh with a crappy camcorder and just started filming birds flying around the marsh. And you're taking a test, and it says – He's multiple choice, and it's got like four different answers of different bird species. You have to identify through this crappy camcorder footage what species of bird is flying there and then say whether or not it's a legal or illegal species to hunt. And then if you don't – I can't remember the minimum score. But if you don't reach the minimum score, you don't get your hunting license. You do not go hunting. And yeah. so it's very heavily scrutinized probably more than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a huge scale of, of uh, differences. and then. You know, you you get into these cultures, South Africa, Argentina, Mexico, you know, the rules are bent often. That's just their culture. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, people listen, it's Field and Game Australia. I'm going to be checking this out. That is very concerning to me. And because and I don't want to get into to the politics, but, you know, back mm -hmm. when COVID started and all this stuff, the scrutinizing and the bullying and you know big big uh big father big brother you know taking control and what a way to set up and i can see the far left you know it's a global it's just not a country it's a global thing of these liberal quacks who uh you know of controlling and well it all it all starts with i mean look at if you look at australia and europe it all starts with gun control even look at what's going on in canada the last couple of years and what they've tried to do it starts with gun control. It starts with uh, making it more difficult to obtain guns, the type of guns you can use, 
um, availability of ammunition. And then that's step one. And, and this is just like historical data. You can go and match it up. The game plan is the same. And they're just further along in Europe and Australia than what we've seen here in our in our own under our own two feet, right? And so um, we're seeing Canada and, and the U.S. start to really try to regulate gun control. Well, what's next steps? Well, okay, now we've got that under control is what they're saying. How do we now start to regulate and control and make it even more difficult for them to go and hunt now? Because then we can eliminate even more of the guns. And so. That is the process. Like I remember the first time I flew into Melbourne, Australia to go duck hunting and the biggest shock and awe was there's billboards like anti-duck hunting billboards on the major freeways. They have a right there as anti-hunters to dress in full white with these massive orange flags and they can go stand out in your decoy spread for as long as they want. And you can't do a thing about it. You can't no hunter them. harassment whatsoever. Zero. That's scary. Zero folks. protection. Yeah. And so... It all depends on the – that's why it's so important in each state to know the politicians, his backgrounds, his ties, his relationships, because it, it can all change in a minute, one administration. You know, we're yeah. one administration away from being – that. and I'll tell you what, man, if there's anything I got out of this podcast, that was very educating, Ryan. And I'm telling you what, the listeners, people should adhere to that. Take a good bite of it, chew on it, mm -hmm. and digest it because it's not long. It it will show up here. The ripple effect is real. I, I if we and you make a good point. If we if we can stay in front of it, stay cognizant of it, um, you know, we can keep it at bay and hopefully eliminate it for for a long time to come. But I think when we get complacent and think that it can't happen here, that is a big big mistake. From every all the work that I do with Safari Club International and my understandings of what they're doing from a legislative point of view here in the U.S., as well as what they're doing for hunters' rights and, um, you know, firearm protection in other countries even, um, do not think that this can't happen here. Like, it, it can, and it will if we're not careful. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, we're going to end this part. Of, this is going to be a two-part podcast. This is an <laughs> amazing wealth of information. We're going we're gonna to make a break here, Ryan, and... Uh, Folks, I want to just reach out and want to thank our sponsors. I want to thank uh, Yeti. I want to thank Sika Gear, Lacrosse, Rite USA, um, Apex Ammo, and Legendary Gear USA. Um, I appreciate what you're saying, Ryan. And folks, if you like this podcast, please hit like, subscribe, and I'll guarantee you the second half is just going to be as much as informative and exciting as this first half. Uh, Again, we just want to thank you for stay tuning and and uh, always remember hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there, rain is shining, all a part of the great design. Bring it on, I can never get enough because that's what legends are made of.